0: Wonderful. Well, hey, if you, if you are here as a guest, we've, we've been doing as a Bible study since we started the semester is studying the theme of stewardship. And we decided to do this because when Jesus predicts the future and our meeting with him face to face, he says that each person who has been a Christian will hear a certain phrase. And that certain phrase includes the word steward. Well done, good and faithful steward. And turn to the joy of your master. But in order for us to be able to hear that word, and then John says in 1 John 2, and not look away in shame when he comes, we have to live a life of faithful stewardship. And so we decided to study this semester the topic of stewardship. And it has various subtopics. And the last couple of weeks we've spent on studying the The fact that we have all been entrusted with stewardship. And the expectation is productivity. That you're living your life in such a way that you are producing for Christ. You're advancing his kingdom. The second week, we talked about the parable of the talents. In Matthew chapter 25, which is the context of the coming of Jesus Christ as judge. And he will ask you to give an account for what he has entrusted to you. And who have been entrusted a variety of gifts and a variety of abilities. And we will give an account for what has been entrusted to you particularly. Not to your neighbor, not to your friend, not to your family member, not to somebody else in your church, but to you. And that could vary from person to person. It does vary. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says that the Holy Spirit personally tailor-made a gift for you and then delivered it to you. And you will give an account for that gift. that was the second week. Tonight, I'd like to focus on what I prayed about, and that is something that we're going to be doing more than anything else in our life, typically. That is work. So to get to this topic, please go to First Thessalonians chapter 4, and as you do that, I'm pretty sure you have heard of this new term or phrase, quiet quitting. Have you heard of this? quiet quitters, quiet quitting, in the context of a career, in the context of work. It's an idea that people wouldn't, don't want to go above and beyond what's expected of them at work. So the explanation is that you're still performing your duty, but you're no longer subscribing to this culture of work having to be your life. And the philosophy of quiet quitters is to do the bare minimum at your job. And the idea that summarizes this whole movement and lots of people in our society is that you're not engaged at work. You are psychologically detached from your job. And according to a recent Gallup poll, 50% of the American workforce fits into this category. Quiet quitters. You're still at work. You're still getting paid. You're still showing up eight to five or nine to six or six to six or whatever the expectations are hours wise. But while you're at work, you are psychologically disengaged. And so one person said, I don't have goals. I don't have ambition. I just want to be attractive. That's what they think about when they are at work. This apathetic declaration in regards to the work ethic is really rampant on TikTok. TikTok where people mock and criticize and ridicule, work and promote leisure. They talk about not having a dream job because I don't dream about labor. (laughs) Neither do I. Another study says, What sets Zoomers apart, according to the common narrative, is their determination to be fulfilled and defined by other aspects of life, other than work. Within this Gallup poll, so 50% fall fall into this category of quiet quitters, but then 18% fall into actively disengaged, completely disengaged at work. These are called loud quitters. They criticize work. They are dissatisfied. They feel like all of their needs at work are unmet. They've been the most vocal on TikTok and have generated millions and millions of views. And this is what describes this kind of an individual, somebody who is actively disengaged as an employee. Social withdrawal and lack of participation at work, increasing in number of breaks taken at work, decrease in productivity and quality of work. They're the last to arrive and first to leave. They are more absent at work than others. They are reluctant to be challenged. They mock other employees who accomplish above and beyond what's expected. They have no desire to learn or to grow. They disparage company objectives, and generally they have a bad attitude. Did I just describe you? Any of you? What? Come on. I hope there's nobody at Grace Church that I just described. In Japan, there's this concept called, and I'm just going to butcher it. I'm sorry if you speak Japanese, shakunin, which refers... To a skilled artisan who is deeply dedicated to his craft, always striving for perfection, which is exactly the opposite of quiet quitting. Somebody who, instead of giving up and disengaging, actively pursues excellence and perfection more and more. According to some recent studies, 53% of Americans are unhappy at work, 58% of employees trust a stranger more than their own boss. 80% of the people quit their jobs because of being unappreciated and primarily because of their boss, not some other element in the company. According to last year's statistics of the US Bureau of Labor, Americans will work an average of 50 hours a week, including at least five to six hours on weekends. In other words, if you do the math, you're gonna spend a third, perhaps a half, of your lifetime, half of your lifetime working. That's a significant enterprise, a significant responsibility and time commitment that each of us will make until we die. So when we think about stewardship through that lens that we're going to spend perhaps half of our lifetime at work, stewardship becomes a significant area to evaluate and apply to work. As Christians, we understand that our ambition is to always be pleasing to Jesus Christ. That is the focal point of our life. And so if we spend up to 50% of our life working, we have to make sure that however we work, where we work, how long we work, the goals that we set at work ultimately are pleasing to Jesus Christ. The Bible is not silent about work and careers and jobs and the work ethic. Just take a look at some of these verses in the book of Proverbs, for example. 6.6, six, a famous passage, Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise, which, having no chief officer or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you rise up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Or chapter 12, he who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who pursues worthless things lacks sense. The hand of the diligent make will rule but the slack hand will be put to forced labor chapter 19 the hand of the diligent will rule but the slack hand will be forced labor something is a problem there think the same exact passage has the same exact words so delete one of those 2013 do not love sleep or you will become poor Open your eyes and you'll be satisfied with food. 26, 13, the sluggard says, there is a lion on the road. A lion is in the open square. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in his dish. He's weary of bringing it to his mouth again. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. You keep going in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes isn't sound about work either. Chapter two, there's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen is from the hand of God. For who can eat, who can have enjoyment without him? I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be glad in his works. For that is his portion. For who will bring to him to see what will occur after him? We keep moving in the book of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 5, there's nothing better for a man than to eat. Nope. Chapter 9, let's do 9. That's a famous one. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Sow your seed in the morning and do not put your hands down in the evening. For you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. And then you go to the New Testament. The New Testament is filled with passages on work. These are kind of the core passages. Ephesians 5, slaves. And we talked about this a year ago in 1 Peter. When we talked about slaves back in the ancient Roman society, really was a statement of employee-employer relationships. And if you have questions about that, I can talk to you afterwards. Slaves be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will render service, as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free, and masters do the same things to them, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. In Titus, Paul says, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. First Peter, servants be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable, for this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. And then there are a few more. First Timothy. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to be submissive to their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. In the same chapter, he says, we have brought nothing into this world so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And then the end of the chapter, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. And a few more Colossians, slaves in all things, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who are merely pleasing men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. First test three, not because we do not have the right, or second test three rather, not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, so that you would follow our example. Even we, or when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone's not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brothers, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone doesn't obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person. Do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. There's a few others I'm going to touch on as we get through this message. That's just a sample. I went through pages in the book of Proverbs. I have a little topical guide to all of Proverbs. It's a fantastic book. I encourage you to buy it. It's by Dr. Mayhew. It's a little blue book called Proverbs by Dr. Mayhew. It's available in a bookstore. And it categorizes all of Proverbs by topic. And there's multiple pages under the topic work. And I just selected the best of the best I thought. But you can see that the Bible is filled with verses on the topic of work hopefully you're convinced that the bible expects you to take your job your career your work seriously and repeatedly we saw you do this for the lord you're not doing this to please man you are to do this with impartiality you're to lead if you're a master or if you're a boss you're to do so without partiality And so as we get into this topic, and it'll take us a few minutes to try to look at it and then go into First Thessalonians chapter 4 a little bit more deeply, I want to remind you of the biblical theology of work. It was Steve Lawson who said, God did not create man for a vacation, but for an occupation. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, God says, Let us make man in our image. According to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, him, male and female, he created them. So God created man and woman to work even before the fall chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 is before the fall the fall comes in chapter 3 and here we have a mission that has been given to adam and eve to rule over creation that's a job that god entrusted to man and woman and god said in our own image our own likeness we're going to do this in other words God says, as I work, and this is the Trinity, right? Let us, as I work, I expect mankind to work. So get this, the first person who is working in the Bible isn't man. It's God. God is the first one who's presented as a worker. In Psalm 8, verse 3, it says, your heavens are the work of your fingers. Even there, the imagery that he's trying to convey to us is that God is using his fingers to create. There's an element of labor implied that. Obviously, it's it's a metaphor because God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body. But the idea is that God is working. God creates the entire universe even before Adam comes to life. One pastor says, this scene in Genesis 1 describes God with dirt under his fingernails he's a worker and he sets himself as an example for humanity to imitate the new testament says that jesus the second member of the trinity was the agent of creation so now the father is the one who came up with the planet that was his contribution to creation and then he used the second member jesus ultimately as he's called after incarnation who was the agent of creation So we see that Genesis 1 affirms that work isn't a part of the curse. As much as we may not like our job, as much as it is difficult and time-consuming and long hours are expected and sometimes we work all night and sometimes we work multiple days in a row because deadlines are upon us, but that is not a curse. Work is a part of God's design for mankind. God put us on this earth to work. And there's a difference between the Christian perspective toward work and the non-Christian perspective toward work. Martin Luther says, your work is very sacred. God delights in it. And through it, he wants to bestow his blessing on you. For the world doesn't consider labor a blessing. Therefore, it flees and hates it. But the pious who fear the Lord labor with a ready and cheerful heart, for they know God's command and will. That's not just say that every single unbeliever hates work and they don't work. That is not the point of that quote, nor reality. But it is true that we have a different understanding of why we work and we find a different satisfaction in work. So our perspective is different, our motivation for work is different, and our satisfaction in work is different. This is Solomon's explanation for work apart from the biblical mindset. In chapter one of Ecclesiastes verse three, this is what he says. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work? which he does under the sun. And so he continues into chapter two and he says, I hated life for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after wind. And then he gives us the God-centered perspective. And that is the end of chapter two. There's nothing better for a man than to eat and to drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. This also have seen that it is from the hand of God for who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him. In other words, God is the one who enables us to enjoy work. And certainly the Bible is filled with passages that indicate that God gives you the power to work, to make wealth. Deuteronomy 7 says that, for example. So in this sin-cursed world, We cannot avoid the warning in Genesis 3.19. By the sweat of your face, you will eat your bread. In other words, the curse isn't to work. The curse is that work is going to be difficult. And it's going to require sweat, effort, agony. It's going to exhaust you. And in that context, he's speaking to Adam specifically. Yet work is part of our daily existence. Raise your hand if you don't have to work to live. Anybody super independently wealthy here? Because I want to be a friend. <laughs> in other words, this applies to all of us in this room. Let me just say it that way. All of us are going to have to work to eat. And I already read this verse, but let me remind you 2 Thessalonians 3.10. If anyone is not willing to work, then he should not eat either what makes the Christian distinct from the world is our work ethic. And that, according to Titus 2.10, should draw the world to the gospel. That last phrase, that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior in every respect, it's a picture of putting on makeup. The idea is that you with your work ethic are beautifying the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're making it more attractive. That's the expectation of every single Christian. How we work either draws people to the gospel and makes it more attractive to believe or it discourages people from even hearing the gospel. So what we do daily, weekly, monthly, annually for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 60 years in MacArthur's case so far. Who knows how long you'll be working. But the time that you are working, the Bible has specific expectations of you as a believer in the context of work. Make sure we understand that what we're going to talk about applies to both genders. This is not simply to the man who is expected to be the provider in the family context. This applies to both genders. The woman is not prohibited from working in the Bible, even if she has children. She's not prohibited from working outside the home. The most famous passage is Proverbs 31. It's long, but I think it's worth a read, and I'd like to make a couple comments on it. Proverbs 31, verse 13. Verse 10 says, an excellent wife who can find. And then this is her description. She looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. She's like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She rises also while it is still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. From her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hands grasp the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor and she stretches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of the snow for her household, for her all in her household are clothed with scarlet. She makes covering for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple, which was extremely expensive in the ancient world. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. Strength and dignity are her clothing and she smiles at the future. In other words, she's optimistic about life. She opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. There's the work ethic. Her children rise up and bless her. Her husband also and he praises her saying, Many daughters have done nobly but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord will be praised. Give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. In the Bible, before you go away, keep it open for a minute. In the Bible, women are presented as industrious, entrepreneurial, successful, wise, discerning. In other words, they're not just sitting at home and making babies and making food for people, her husband specifically. No, you see a variety. Let me give you a couple of examples. Lydia, Acts 16, a merchant of purple fabrics, which means that she was a successful businesswoman trading in the finest fabric in the Greco-Roman world. And she was wealthy enough to, That she was able to bring Paul in and his associates when they came to Philippi to preach the gospel. And then she hosted them. That's how chapter 16 develops. And we have the first church in Europe formed in Acts 16 because of her role in the spread of the gospel. She would have been trading elegant, exquisite, expensive garments. Kind of like what you would find in Rodeo Drive. That's the idea behind being a trader of fine purple linen. Abigail in 1 Samuel 25. It says that she was beautiful and intelligent and discerning. And she prevents the slaughter of her household when David asks for food and water and her husband Nabal refuses. Esther, of course, is famous as she protects the nation from destruction. Ruth in chapter 2 It talks about her going and working in the fields. And it's interesting that it actually measures her work. It says that she was gleaning in the field until evening. You think she started at 5 p.m.? No, the, the assumption is she started in the morning and she's still working until evening. And then it says, and she beat out what she had gleaned. It was an ephah of barley. An ephah of barley is 50 pounds. She got collected it herself. She then beat it up and then brought it home to Ruth. To, to her Naomi, I'm sorry. Naomi, 50 pounds. Do you know how long she did this for? According to the Bible, verse 23? For seven months, every single day. That's a working woman. Sure, she was a widow. I get that. But she was working. She wasn't hanging out by Boaz's... Well, kind of was, but... <laughs> But she was working before that marriage happened. The Old Testament model of a woman is a hard working woman. In Titus 2 5, it says she's a worker at home, but it doesn't say she only works at home. The idea there behind that language in the Greek is that she's a guardian of her house. That's what that means. She protects it, protects it. She invests in it. It's kind of what we read in Proverbs 31. So yes, the priority of a married woman with kids falls on the protection and the provision of her house, but it doesn't limit her from engaging in other industries. You see, Genesis 3.19, the curse is on man having to work to the point of sweat, not to sit idle, is also an expectation of the woman. And in Proverbs 31, there's an interesting statement. It says that her man, her husband, is known or praised in the gates. The elders of the city, just think about the parliament, congress, senate, the leaders, the politicians in the ancient world would have gathered by the city gates. They were the the decision makers, the rulers of that little village. And so her husband clearly is a man of influence, nobility, power. And so he's over there and he is respected. But look at the very last phrase of verse 31. Let her works praise her in the gates. Same exact location as her husband. In other words, her competence, her hard work, her industrious ability is what gets her recognized In the highest level of influence in the society. The elders, the politicians, the governors, the elders who make decisions know of her, not because of her husband, because of her works. That's the level of quality and hard work we're talking about. The man is sitting and talking and making decisions, and perhaps it has to do with war and defense and advancement and business ventures with other villages and so on. But she is such an individual who's so able that she is known in the parliament, in the Senate, in the Congress, in Washington, D.C. because of how hard she works. The Bible elevates a hardworking woman. And I say this so that none of you in any way think that this is only for one gender. fact i would say that proverbs 31 is an illustration of proverbs 29 22 29 do you see a person skilled in his work he will stand before kings he will not stand before obscure men that's the idea right she is known in the gates in the among the politician politicians because of her skilled labor in other words your reputation will echo in the halls and the offices of those who make decisions in your company. If you have a work ethic, according to the Bible, that's what Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine says, people will recognize your competence. They'll recognize your hard work and they'll talk about you and then make decisions accordingly of what your role will be in the future at work. So, This is the biblical theology of work. And it goes a little bit more specific in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That's where I want to spend the rest of our time together. And I want to read just a few verses. Beginning in verse 10, right in the middle. Paul says, we urge you, brothers, to excel still more. To make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. And to attend to your own business and work with your own hands, just as we commanded you. So that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. That's Paul's lesson to the Thessalonians. This is one of his first books. He wrote Galatians first and then he wrote first Thessalonians. And three months later, he wrote second Thessalonians. So this is the second book that Paul wrote. And he's writing to Christians at Thessalonica who are being persecuted. We know that from chapter 1, from Second Thessalonians chapter 1 as well. And who have wondered because of persecution, perhaps we've missed the rapture. we missed the return of Jesus Christ. And so he encourages them by writing this book and ultimately says, expect the return of King Jesus. He hasn't come back yet. But this is the kind of life you ought to live as you anticipate the return of King Jesus. And so in chapter 4, he says in verse 1, excel still more. In verse 10, he says, excel still more. In the first section, the first eight verses, he says, excel in your sanctification. In verse 9, and to the beginning of verse 10, he says, excel in your love for one another. And then in verses 10 through 12, he says, excel in your work. And this is not limited To men, once again, just because it says brothers, it doesn't mean that it's only talking about the males. Because otherwise, in the next paragraph, verses 13 and beyond, the women are not going to be raptured. Because it also says brothers who are going to be raptured. So be consistent. Don't try to apply the work to the men only. Otherwise, ladies are going to be left behind. So tonight, go watch that movie, Left Behind. (laughs) Prepare for your future. So what is Paul trying to do here? He says, this is what a Christian looks like at work. And so I want to give you six principles that should govern your work, your career, your job. First, excellence. Excellence, it's right there in verse 10. Excel, still more. If you look at the last century in the world, a fitting word that describes the last century is progress, right? Progress. Medical, scientific, technological progress. We went from horses to cars to planes to private space travel. We went from phones to computers to virtual reality to now meta. You went from magazines, kind of giving you coupons what to buy and advertising to Amazon predicting your shopping habits. We went from paying with salt back in the day, literally, that was a medium, a currency, to coins, to paying with your phone, to paying with your watch, to now face recognition software that you can pay with. I'd say it's fair to say that our world is characterized by progress and advancement. Pursuit of the next phase. That's the meaning of this word excellence excel still more it's all about advancement it's all about progress it's all about improvement and paul uses it three times in this book back in chapter 3 in chapter 4 verse 1 and then in our passage for this evening here we are excelling in holiness we're excelling in love and we're excelling in work so for the work environment it means that you don't turn in half-written reports You don't turn in half-finished projects. You don't turn in formulas with math errors in them, no matter how bad you are at math. If you hate math, you should read this passage more carefully. In other words, the goal here is excellence, quality. You don't stop continued education in your career. You keep growing and understanding more and more. If you're a student, that's your primary commitment right now that ultimately gets you a job and a career. And all these principles apply as well. Excellence is expected of you, whether you're 10 years old and you're in fifth or sixth grade or you're 30 and you're in seminary at first semester. It doesn't really matter. Excellence is expected because you are learning and studying in the context of a future job and a career. And so Paul says, look, as you anticipate the return of Jesus Christ, because that's the main point of this whole book, Your life in the context of work is to be characterized by the pursuit of excellence. Secondly, peace. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Fascinating that he uses the word ambition in juxtaposition to quiet. Typically, when you think of an ambitious person, you don't think of a quiet person, do you? It's somebody who's stepping on people. And pushing people out of the way because he or she needs to get to the top. And they're ambitious to be the the boss or the influencer. And so people are not something or someone they value. And yet Paul says, be ambitious to lead a quiet life. And the idea behind ambition is zealousness. Pursuing honor. It was used to describe Romans, wealthy philanthropic Romans who competed with each other in trying to outdo one another in their philanthropic efforts. That's how this word was used in the Greco-Roman society. So in other words, at work, your ambition is that I want to be the most agreeable, peaceful, individual in the context of my job. As the people around you watch your work, they make a decision that this person is a peaceful individual. They're not constantly objecting and arguing with the boss or coworkers, creating an environment of hostility. And Paul says, you lead a quiet life. It's a calm person that he's describing. Somebody who doesn't create havoc. Romans 12, 18, it says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Hebrews 12, 14 says, pursue peace with all men. So we're talking about a a placid individual, a tranquil individual, a calm individual. So in the work environment, you take your job description seriously and you take your excellent pursuit of quality also seriously, but not... To the creation of havoc in your environment. You're not a backstabber. You're not a political in your environment. You're not undermining other people. You're not trying to make them look bad and make yourself look good. I'm not just talking about Christian work environment, all work environments where Christians are. This doesn't mean that you never express your opinion, you never disagree, but it does mean that you understand your place and your position. And so you are respectable, even if you're given a project that you don't want to have anything to do with. And you feel like it's not your best strength. It's not what you are able to do well, but you receive it and understand, I'm going to be agreeable. I'm going to be peaceable. I'm going to try to do my best with what has been entrusted to me. I'd say the most, one of the most important traits of being successful in any work environment is flexibility. You have to be flexible, especially in our world. Things move so fast, things change so fast. And if you don't, you're going to get left behind. And so you have to be willing to change with the bosses change and the coworkers change and so on. And look, all of us have been asked to do things that we wish we weren't asked to do. How many of you in your long, long careers have been asked to do a project or something that you did not want to do? Raise your hand. Yeah, I would say most of you and the rest of you are liars. (laughs) Look, it happens because your boss is looking for someone to get the work done. And sometimes for whatever reason, you might be at the wrong place at the right time. And so you get a project you wish you didn't. And I was in a board meeting once and Dr. Buznitz was a professor professor at the seminary. who was my professor in seminary. We bumped into each other and we're talking and I was kind of you know whining to him. And he said, "Mark, remember this, this isn't your life. This is God's life that He has entrusted to you, and you're a steward of it." And then he said, "God always uses your past in your present and in your future. So whatever your past is, whether it's science or medicine or finance or construction, you have to remember that if we believe in the providence of God, we do, that God brought you through that path and ultimately placed you wherever you are right now, whatever you're doing in your job. And he will use whatever he has already entrusted to you in the past, in your present and in your future. And so the response to that is flexibility. That's the whole point. Be flexible with your boss or your co-workers. Because I think that is what a Christian does. They are peaceable. They are agreeable. Of course, you have to set certain limits and you can't work 24-7 for 80 years. So you do have some reasonableness in your life. But as we talk about work as a Christian, we have to understand that Paul says, make it your ambition to be peaceable at work. And the word ambition is only used three times in the New Testament. This is one of them. You want to know what the other two are? Romans 15, 20. It is my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ hasn't been named. In other words, Paul is saying, I will do whatever I need to do to take the gospel. In that context, it's Spain. Because for them, back in the first century, Spain was the farthest point in the Roman Empire, their understanding of it. And so he said, I want to take the gospel to the last human being in our empire and the second is right there we know this verse how many of you have memorized this verse it is our ambition whether at home or absent alive or dead to be pleasing to him that's it so paul takes this word And only uses it alone. Nobody else uses it in the New Testament. And in those three ways. My ambition is to preach the gospel to everyone. My ambition is to please the Lord all the time. My ambition is to work peacefully. Do you see the value and the gravity of this word now in the context of work? That's how much we have to invest into being excellent employees and peaceable employees as Christians. To the same ambition that you have. You want people to be saved, don't you? And you want to please the Lord in everything, don't you? That's the gravity that Paul is expecting of us. Why are we able to be peaceable at work? Because of contentment. Verse 11. And attend to your own business. Mind your own business. You can say that to people from now on. It's in the Bible. Stay out of my office. Mind your own business. That's what Paul is saying and attend to your own affairs in the second book second test 3:11 he says i'm hearing that some of you are leading an undisciplined life doing no work acting like busybodies 1st timothy 5:13 does i hope this doesn't characterize you at the same time they also learn to be idle As they go around from house to house and not merely idle, but they're gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. First Peter 4.15. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. You know what the word meddler means? Somebody who oversees people. Not in an official capacity like an elder, the, the word means to oversee. But this person, that's the word, to oversee others. In other words, they think it's their responsibility and their privilege and right to oversee other people. So they check in on you all the time. How's that coming along? They don't work. You don't work for them. But they're busybodies. They want to know what's going on. They're always in the gossip mill. And Paul says, mind your own business. Stay out of my cubicle. That's what he's trying to say. You have a responsibility to do. Be a peaceable employee, be an excellent employee, stay out of the business of other people. Don't be a gossip, don't be a busybody at work. And whether it's a, you're a manager or you're an employee, there is a difference between management and micromanagement, right? management, according to the office. What is it? Teddy Roosevelt said it super well. Listen to this. The best executive is the one who has sense enough to pick up good men to pick good men to do what he wants done and self restraint to keep from meddling with them while they do it. If you have oversight over other people, pick the right people and get out of the way. Pastor John, and they were talking about this a week ago, talking about all the different things that are happening in this ministry and affiliated ministries. And we, we basically said to each other on the phone, we don't want to do all this work. And he said, exactly right. Find the right people and get out of the way. That's the whole point of leadership is entrust people with whatever needs to be done. So whatever level you hold in the company that you work for, remember, mind your own business. In other words, be content with the responsibility and the position given to you. And as you work, pursue excellence and be peaceful, peaceable. Number four, diligence. Work with your own hands. In the middle of verse 11, attend to your own business and work with your own hands. Marcus Aurelius was a Roman emperor, the last of the good seven emperors, the end of the second century, 180 AD period. This is what he said. At dawn, when you have trouble getting out of bed, Tell yourself, I have to go to work as a human being. What do I have to complain of? If I'm going to do what I was born for, the things I was brought into this world to do, or is this what I was created for? To huddle under the blankets and stay warm. Now, sometimes it's kind of nice to huddle (laughs) under a warm blanket, right? Especially when it's raining outside and the wind is howling. Never happens in the lay, but you know, just imagine that the scene, you'd probably want to stay under your blanket. What he's saying is a non-Christian Roman emperor who actually persecuted Christians severely. He says, you were born to work, get out of bed. That's what he's saying. And we've seen this in the Bible. The first thing that God tells Adam is get to work. This is what I gave you to do. This is the mission. This is the task. Get to work. Work for my glory. But as everything in life, in a sinful world, we pervert God's design. And with work, we twist it in one of two ways. Laziness or becoming workaholics. Laziness is avoiding responsibility. That's all that is. I know what I need to do, but I don't want to do it. That's the whole point. I don't want to do what I'm supposed to be doing. And so the reminder is in Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Because where you're going, death, you're not going to work. That's the context of that passage. Tim Chalice, who's a blogger and a Christian writer, author, says this, work is not significant only when it utilizes my full capacity or full capabilities work is not significant only when it offers unusual challenge or special opportunity work is not significant only when it is measurable in dollars and cents or praise and compliments work has intrinsic significance because it gives me the opportunity to do something with joy with joy in the lord i can do my work in such a way that it glorifies god or i can do it in such a way that it dishonors him anything i can do to god's glory has significance It has great significance. There is an intrinsic value and worth in working because that's why we were created to the glory of God. He continues, how do I do my work to the glory of God? I embrace the task, no matter how menial or insignificant it may seem. I do it when I'm told to do it. I do it to completion and I do it with joy. When I do it this way, I'm glorifying God. So, Instead of finding excuses and avoiding responsibility, he says work. No matter how menial, how insignificant, how it may seem unimportant to you, we work. It doesn't mean that you have to be stuck in the same horrible job for the rest of your life. You have the freedom to choose and and get another degree and change your career. We have that privilege in our world. But it does mean once you commit, you are excellent. And you're peaceable and you mind your own business and you're not lazy but you're also not a workaholic that's the other perversion of work Harold Abrahams a runner in the chariots of fire story said that when he was asked why do you run he says I run because I have 10 seconds to justify the meaning of my existence in other words he finds value in work that's Also wrong. We don't find our meaning, our value, our identity in work. Madonna, when interviewed, said this. Nobody works the way I work. And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. In other words, her meaning in life is tied to her job. For the Christian, that's not how it is. When God gave Adam the responsibility to work in chapter 2, In chapter 3, God shows up in the cool of the day for a conversation with Adam. In other words, God did not sever his relationship with Adam after he gave him a job. The meaning, the value, the identity was always to be found in a relationship with God, not in the task that we are doing. And so becoming workaholics, what happens is we shift our identity from a relationship with God And now we find our identity in our job and we find various excuses. I have to work for my family. I have to work for to advance to the next career, to retire early, to give more to the church, whatever reasons we come up with. But ultimately, workaholism is also unbiblical. And so God expects us to work faithfully, to work hard and to do it like he did. Work is a reminder that one day we're going to rest like God rested, right? Hebrews 4 says, rest isn't here yet. It's coming, but it's not here yet. And God rested after six days of work. We're also going to rest one day. And so when we have this proper understanding, it affects our reputation. Just as we commanded you, Paul said, so that you will behave properly toward the outsiders the idea here is that you have a reputation of decorum propriety you it's a word for nobility it's a word for privilege public admiration prominence royalty standing in high repute that's the word behind that word that word in the greek language it's what we've seen on the news recently with the funeral procession of Queen Elizabeth, right? You have to wear the right clothes, you know, and they're arguing about why does Harry look different than, you know, Prince William and all this other stuff. And who stands where and who cares what and all these elements that are important for a proper, elegant royal wedding, a uh, funeral wedding too. <laughs> Paul says, when you work this way, That's your reputation with the outsiders. There's an element of elevation to who you are. It's about proper decorum in this case. You become an advertisement for God, for the gospel. People are listening and people are watching. And the reward is at the very end of verse 12. And you will not be in any need. In other words, success. You will be able to accomplish your goal. Now, there's a contrast to verses 9 and 10 here because if you love other brothers, you're going to share with them. That's the idea in verses 9 and 10. So none of them have any needs in the context of the church. But you, if you work hard, God will ultimately reward you. But also because of this passage, then the end of chapter 3 of the second Thessalonians, there's an element of there is no place in the Christian community for leeches, for parasitic Christians. We don't freeload off of each other. If you don't want to work, you shouldn't eat. That's Second Thessalonians chapter 3. And so here, if you're working hard and you have a great reputation because of that, you will not be in any need. God is saying you will be successful. You will be rewarded. And it does take a lot of effort and a lot of work and a lot of sweat. But consider Jesus, who was a carpenter and a preacher. Consider Paul, who was a tent maker and a preacher. Consider Peter, who was a fisherman, and his house has been found. Guess where it is? It's on the beach. He had a beach house. It means he was successful. Have you ever heard of a cheap beach house, affordable beach house? Peter's business was successful. John and James were fishermen. They were a prominent family in ancient Israel, known to the high priest, not related to the high priest, known to the high priest because of how successful they were as a family in business. In other words, we have examples in the New Testament of people who worked hard, bivocational, like Paul, for example, and Achille and Priscilla. And they were honored. And we've talked about some of these other names a couple weeks ago. You see what, God is expecting of us as Christians is that we work hard. That's the stewardship and stewardship entrusted to us. You chose your career. Get a different one if you don't like it. But whatever you pursue, that is how you are to work. Excellently, peaceably, be content, be diligent, have a high Regard, or people should hold, hold you in high regard, and then success awaits you. That's the last characteristic. And there's eternal value that we gain from this kind of work. And Tim Chalice once again reminds us every day and every moment, I have the choice before me. Will I do my work in such a way that it glorifies God? Or will I do my work in such a way that it dishonors and displeases Him? In the face of such questions, I know my work matters. No matter what my work is, it matters. It matters because my work is a stage to bring glory to my God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's the ultimate evaluation. Is your life glorifying God because you are a faithful steward in your career? we pray for us. Lord God, we are grateful for Paul's challenge to work in such a way that it glorifies you. We understand that sin has twisted our desire, our commitment, even sometimes our progress at work. And so with all those limitations and difficulties we still ask that the Holy Spirit would empower us to be faithful stewards in the responsibility that you have given us at work help us to be content help us to work with peace with one another help us to pursue your honor in all that we do and all that we say ultimately it's our ambition to be pleasing to you through work And I do pray that if somebody is here who doesn't know you and hasn't committed a life that would be pleasing to you, they haven't bowed their knee before you, asked for forgiveness and have come to a place of recognizing that they've been pleasing themselves, not you. I ask that the Holy Spirit would give them new life, would move them to repentance and would show them very vividly the blessing that it is to work for you as our master. We know that we will see you one day face to face. We know that we will have to give an account. We know that if we spend 50 years working, 50 hours a week and sometimes more, we will give an account for every single hour spent at work. You've entrusted us with this time. Help us not to selfish, self-promoting, conniving, gossips, undermining other employees, living in the context of fear of man, being lazy, showing up late, leaving early, doing things that are not consistent with the character of a Christian. Help us to live a life at work where people stand up, and hold us as if we are nobility because we work as Christians for our master, Jesus Christ. We pray this to the honor of his name. Amen.